You are listening to Vital Signs, a podcast for Sentara providers. Welcome to episode two of Alcohol Withdrawal. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Neil Davis, critical care clinical specialist who was with us for the first episode. But before we turn things over to Dr. Davis, let's go over some important CME announcements. This episode has been accredited for AMA PRA Category 1 credits. For detailed accreditation and designation information, along with disclosure information, please visit the show notes. This information can also be found on our website, www.sentera.com forward slash physician education, as well as always reaching us by email at physicianeducation at sentera.com. Now let's turn things over to Dr. Davis. So now I wanted to talk about some therapy-related pearls. So who are ideal candidates for the phenobarbital-based strategies? Patients with a history of DTs or seizures, scoring greater than or equal to four on our paused assessment tool, or those patients that have a history of benzodiazepine refractory, or those patients who are currently experiencing high CWA scores despite receiving benzodiazepine therapy, as well as patients who are in active DTs or have severe withdrawal symptoms. Remember, this subset of patients have significant GABA receptor downregulation, as well as significant reductions in GABA concentrations, and the benzodiazepines are completely contingent on adequate GABA concentrations for their efficacy. Also, patients who have significant alterations in mental status and or high to medium risk of delirium, the early aggressive doses of phenobarbital may be beneficial in this subset. As we'll discuss multiple times when we're going through the protocol, patients who are extremes of age or those who have evidence of cirrhosis are probably not good candidates for phenobarbital-based strategies or long-acting benzodiazepines, for that matter, because of their inability to clear the drug. So we're really looking at patients over the age of 65 or those with a history or current evidence of cirrhosis. There are also a number of drug interactions that may preclude use of phenobarbital or if the patient doesn't have a clear diagnosis. These long-acting agents are probably not going to be the best options in these patients. Other pearls that we should consider, if delirium persists after we have given our patients 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram of phenobarbital, we should really start to consider alternate diagnoses. Consider a soft max of 30 milligrams per kilogram in the first 24 to 48 hours. Remember also we can get phenobarbital levels. Therapeutic serum concentrations for treatment of seizures are 15 to 40 mics per ml. So I have frequently obtained phenobarbital levels to help me guide additional therapy. We do need to be cognizant that phenobarbital functions synergistically with benzodiazepines for respiratory depression. So patients that have received significant concomitant agents that suppress the respiratory drive or at high risk for airway compromise, we need to be careful in these subsets of patients. Now let's talk about some pearls with benzodiazepines. Again, unfortunately, there is a void of good, strong, 
randomized controlled clinical data to help guide us. The literature that is available seems to suggest that longer-acting benzodiazepines, such as chlordiazepoxide and diazepam, may provide smoother withdrawal than intermediate-acting agents such as lorazepam. Again, we should use caution with these long-acting therapies in the elderly subsets, as well as those that have impaired hepatic function, i.e. cirrhosis. Providers also need to understand the pharmacokinetics of these options. Diazepam and chlordiazepoxide are more lipophilic. Remember the blood-brain barrier is a bilipid layer that protects the CNS circulation from the plasma. So these lipophilic agents have a faster onset. Lorazepam is actually fairly water-soluble. So it penetrates slowly across the blood-brain barrier, both on the way in and on the way out. So it may have a more delayed onset than these more lipophilic agents, diazepam and chlordiazepoxide. But it may actually risk greater accumulation down the road because of this delayed onset. So again, the evidence demonstrates that diazepam and other lipophilic agents are safe for the treatment of alcohol withdrawal when they are administered on a symptom-based approach, and they may actually prove superior because of their faster onset. Unfortunately, chlordiazepoxide has no intravenous formulation still on the market, so oral routes are our only options. Only lorazepam and diazepam have intravenous forms, and we have all been conditioned with the frequent drug shortages that we've experienced the last few years, so having multiple options available to providers on the protocol hopefully helps us avoid some of the challenges we faced with drug shortages. Briefly looking at the pharmacokinetics, I mentioned the longer-acting benzodiazepines, diazepam and chlordiazepoxide, have a fast onset, somewhere between 30 minutes and an hour. Terminal half-lives of both of these agents approach 100 to 120 hours because of active metabolites. They are also oxidized in the liver, which requires more synthetic function. This is the CP450 enzyme system. Lorazepam is considered a medium-acting benzodiazepine. The time to maximum concentration can actually be upwards of 2 to 4 hours. So as you can see, it has a delayed onset, but a half-life of only 10 to 20 hours. It has no active metabolites, and it undergoes conjugation in the liver. So when the diagnosis is unclear, our patients have demonstrated evidence of cirrhosis or they are in the more aged subsets, lorazepam is the safer agent to use. And finally, in contrast, phenobarbital kinetics has a very short onset, less than 30 minutes, and a terminal half-life of 80 to 120 hours. So it gives us that long-term smooth control, very similar to diazepam and chlordiazepoxide. It has no active metabolites, but also undergoes oxidation in the liver, requiring more synthetic function, and less safe to use in our aged subsets or those with active cirrhosis. The next agent that I would like to discuss in brief is dexmedetomidine. This is a continuous infusion agent predominantly used to help us sedate patients in the intensive care unit. It is a selective alpha-2 agonist and has a central action of inhibiting plasma catecholamines such as norepinephrine release at the locus coriolis and this helps reduce central sympathetic output. It has helped us revolutionize the therapy of some of these alcohol withdrawal patients that previously would have required 
intubation and mechanical ventilation in the ICU. Its benefits are reducing autonomic hyperactivity, controlling sympathetic symptoms of alcohol withdrawal such as tremor, hypertension, and tachycardia without inhibition of respiratory function. It does have no antiepileptic activity and no GABA activity. Therefore, it is not directly impacting the central mechanism of alcohol withdrawal. So that is something we need to keep in mind. And in fact, it may actually mask the symptoms of alcohol withdrawal by lowering the SIBA score and lowering the RAS score and prevent the appropriate administration of GABA active therapy. So we need to keep this in mind when we are managing patients with dexmedetomidine. So it should really only be used as a short-term adjunct. And we need to be mindful that it does tend to reduce benzodiazepine or other therapies such as phenobarbital requirements based on triggering the SIWA score. It also may produce bradycardia and hypotension. A literature review conducted in 2015 found that dexmedetomidine reduced benzodiazepine requirements as well as reducing the sympathomimetic response, but without convincing evidence that it really improved the clinical endpoints, mechanical ventilation, or length of stay. So our goal should be to ramp up our gabinergic therapy, whether that be benzodiazepines or phenobarbital, and really use dexmedetomidine as a band-aid to help us hopefully avoid intubation. Our goal should be to wean it off within the first 8 to 12 hours, certainly within 24, and we should continue or increase the gabinergic therapy, either benzodiazepines or phenobarbital, understanding that dexmedetomidine may reduce the SIWA scores and reduce the gabinergic therapy that these patients desperately need. When providers look at our new protocol, they will see that therapies are based on assessment of the PAUSE score as well as the SIWA score. The order set guides providers to the most effective options. As I alluded to earlier in our discussion, the PAUSE assessment is done on all admitted patients with a portal of entry through the emergency room or direct admits it's performed by the floor nurse. And remember we discussed that a pause score greater than or equal to four is consistent with a high risk of complicated alcohol withdrawal. Those are really the patients that we want to identify early and treat aggressively. You will notice that adjunctive medications have been provided, including high-dose thiamine regimens for patients at risk for Wernicke's encephalopathy. As providers move through the order set, there are simple questions that are collapsed and then expand once these selections are chosen. For the casual drinker who has a pause score less than four and are not currently scoring on the CWA assessment, they simply get symptom-triggered therapy alone with either lorazepam, diazepam, or cordiazepoxide, and these therapies are only given for CWA scores greater than eight. Nurses assess these patients every four hours. As patients become more complicated, if they have a pause score of four or greater, or they are already scoring on the CWA assessment tool when they are seen, either in the ED or on admission, we want to provide these patients aggressive therapy options. You will appreciate that there is options for a scheduled regimen, which tapers, as well as symptom-triggered therapy. We have given providers guidance, as well as lots of options for phenobarbital, long-acting benzos such as chlorodiazepoxide and diazepam, 
as well as lorazepam, which all of our providers should be accustomed to using. We have also provided guidance based on those patients with histories of cirrhosis and age, as we already discussed earlier, as well as providing dosage options based on extensive literature review in comparison to protocols in other systems around the country. We've listed guidance and colors in the order sets to help providers choose these therapies. This is, again, every four-hour assessments for our nurses, and we now have automated triggers so that nurses don't have to remember when the repeat assessments are due. There are pop-ups in EPIC to help remind our nurses so they're not reliant on memory. We have also included instructions to the nurses to notify providers when two or more PRN doses have been given within an eight-hour period. And this was really to notify providers such that they could reconsider doses, choice of therapy, or perhaps needing increase the level of care. Our most aggressive subset are those patients who are already in severe withdrawal or DTs or have a SEWA score greater than 15 despite receiving already adequate therapy of scheduled and PRN doses. In these patients, they get hourly assessments, and we have aggressive dosing options for phenobarbital as well as aggressive dosing options for lorazepam infusions. They can still continue scheduled and PRN therapy from the middle boxes of the CEWA scores between 1 and 14, as well as we're providing dexmedetomidine therapy for these patients to try to avoid intubation on the most complicated subsets. So I think providers will be very pleased with the options that we've provided on these order sets. Thank you for joining us, and be on the lookout for Episode 3 of Alcohol Withdrawal. You've been listening to Sentara Healthcare's Vital Signs, a podcast for Sentara providers. As a reminder, read today's show notes for information about claiming your continuing education credits. Well, that's it for now, but we'll be back soon with another episode of Vital Signs, a podcast for Sentara providers the podcast that provides evidence-based education programs for physicians and healthcare providers on the go.